I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 100 of Cybersecurity Interviews. This is going to be a special episode where we celebrate the 100th episode of Cybersecurity Interviews. And in this episode, I have turned the mic back on me for me to be a guest by one of my past guests, great friend and amazing asset to the community, Nadine Tanner. She crowdsourced some questions, but had plenty of her own as we did this very special Ask Me Anything episode. And for those who don't know me, I'm an information security executive with over 26 years of entrepreneurial and professional technology experience. I've been recognized as an expert, and we talk about how much sometimes I hate that word, in cybersecurity, incident response, digital forensics, and information governance. And I've served as a CISO and led enterprise security assessments and conducted hundreds of investigations which have involved everything from hacking, data breaches, trade secret theft, employee malfeasance, and various other legal and compliance issues. I've also served as a federally court-appointed special master and neutral expert in very high-profile litigation matters involving data privacy, data security, and e-discovery. Currently, I work at Splunk, where I work with Fortune 500 organizations to improve their security operations and reduce business risk from cyber attacks. And I'm obviously also the founder of Cybersecurity Interviews, which you're listening to now. In this episode, we discuss why I started the podcast, imposter syndrome, guests I would love to have on the show, my current focus on mental health and diversity and inclusion in cybersecurity, important soft skills, talents versus skills, what's in my fridge, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this special episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Well, Nadine, thank you so much for joining me in the 100th episode of Cybersecurity Interviews and agreeing to kind of turn the mic back on me. I really appreciate you uh, jumping in and, and taking, this, uh, taking this challenge. It is my pleasure to be here. Well, now you get to be the host and you can ask me whatever you want. We did get put some feelers out there for folks that if they wanted to ask some questions, I'm sure you've gathered some. So I think it's only fair that after, you know, doing a hundred of these, these shows that, that it's time for me to be in the hot seat. <laughs> well, I am privileged that, that you asked me to do this. And I did, I kind of circulated uh, what our, our intent was. It was your 100th four years of doing cybersecurity interviews. And uh, one question that I got was, what were the origins? Four years ago, what were you thinking? And, and has this grown the way you anticipated it? You know, have you met your goal yet? There's been iterative goals. And you, I think of all people, will appreciate the reason that really started this was to kind of face head on and tackle my imposter syndrome. Having been in technology and computer security for years, you know, you get to you get to see people that are like your heroes and gods in the industry. And I didn't feel worthy. I'm like, there's no way I can hold myself to these these folks levels, you know, the Lenny Zeltzers, the Rob Lees, um, mm-hmm. all these people that have written books and blogged I mean you yourself, like published books. I was honored that you even 
asked for me, asked for my permission to quote me on in a book. I'm like me. I was like, I don't think I say anything that smart. <laughs> um, but you know, it's just always challenging with that of thinking, you know, am I am I worthy? What am I doing here? And I really found it cathartic to sit down and speak with people that I had looked at in such high regard. And there's almost in a weird way came out at the other side with a much different perspective when they say, you know, never meet your heroes because, you know, you do kind of put people on a pedestal and you have these expectations. And when you talk to folks and we're even like somebody like Lenny Zeltzer, who's, you know, up there for me, he's top five. And he's just like, yeah, there's been times where I even question what I'm doing in the industry or he's just like, I, I, I really don't think I, I have it. I'm like, if you're saying that, what am I doing? But then I realized, you know, more and more people that have been doing this long enough, that's one, it's not a feeling that goes away. So you have to learn how to kind of accept and cope and deal with it. Um, but it's a common theme too, is that everybody that's been doing this for a long period of time. And I was even a lot of people that are now entering the industry are just like, you, you just feel overwhelmed because there's so much to learn and so much to kind of try, try to carve out your niche. And then once you kind of feel that you might get specialized on it, oh, something changes and all of a sudden you need to become a <laughs> Kubernetes expert. I'm like, God damn it. I just had this stuff figured out. <laughs> and so it, it's part of that is to constantly kind of find new inputs and new ideas. So it's, it's evolved from that imposter syndrome to really kind of want to connect and build my network, get to know people but really have these kind of fireside chats. Like when I would go to conferences and yes, I speak and I'll do the Doug show on stage. And when I get off, it's the hallway conversations, it's bar con and lobby con that I have the best conversations. I'm like, why are we not recording this? And that was part of it too. Is like, this is the type of sharing these little off the cuff conversations about what reality is, as opposed to this stage presentation that I thought was really important to give back to the community. And I think that was the overarching thing is I'm a, big fan of give to get. So if somebody's, you know, trying to figure out, Hey, how do I get an industry? I'm like, figure out something that you can provide a voice to a unique perspective, research it, put it out there, help others. That's how you get into this industry. And that's what I still believe today. And it was still, you know, when I started this four years ago was, was something that I feel so important. I still, you know, like I said, I encourage everybody to do. That is so cool that you mentioned it. I think you should also have elevator con. Sometimes you find yourself <laughs> trapped with somebody who's like, oh my gosh. Uh, I also think social media to a certain extent. I know since I've made friends with, you know, like you said, some of the people that you put on pedestals and then you see what they have for dinner, you know, last night, it's like, yeah, yeah, they're, they live and breathe just like we do. Um, so if you could interview anybody that you've not interviewed yet, who would that be and why? Ooh, that's a good one. So a couple have come to mind. Um, and one who is one of the few people that was, uh, I, I was politely turned down to interview uh, was Kevin Mitnick, just because in the 90s, I was a free Kevin guy. And it was funny, he spoke at our, our Splunk conference yesterday, which I thought was pretty cool. But he's always been one of those where you know, it's kind of hard to hard to get on get down. I'm probably have to reach out to him now again to see if it's uh it's more feasible now that you know we're all kind of quarantined. Um but that that's just one of those people where it's it's just fascinated by his story. Um I really you know, I kind of looked at that as, as a gateway drug into cybersecurity when I was listening to Off the Hook and listening to him calling from jail <laughs> and to these stories where they're like, yeah, we're, they're, they're not, they're, they're thinking and telling me I'm not allowed a computer because I'm so dangerous. And he's like, what is that? What does that even mean? And hearing all these stories, it's just like that, that fear and uncertainty and doubt that got bred so much in the early 
folks that were just even trying to evolve this industry. So just fascinated by that whole story arc. You know, others would always in, in, in maybe just kind of in more of an interest in name brand kind of thing. And I think it would be, might be kind of fun would be like an Edward Snowden. I've always thought that would be kind of an interesting get. Um, that would be. Yeah, just, but in a talk about it, but more like I think to put more of the human side, we've talked so much post booze days and what he did with the NSA, but I was like, how did, like, I'm curious like how people get to, to those moments where they do become famous, where they do have that body of work or whatever it is, where it's infamous or, or not, you know, that, that people kind of say, Oh, I know I, you get that name brand recognition. Well, how did, how did you get to that point? That's, that's what I'm always interested in. Very cool. I have with, with Mitnick, I've met him a couple of times at uh, Black Hat and, and it was kind of cool to meet him. You know, he's a regular fella, you know, we're about the same height and, and it was really kind of cool. And then, um, my nephew is new in cybersecurity and uh, he's got Mitnick on a pedestal. And I was like, do you want his business card? <laughs> he's like, hey, you got his business card? I was like, actually, I have two. <laughs> so I sent him one. And for him, it was just, ah. So it's interesting. The new people are the coming in and, and they look at people like you and they're like, yeah, yeah, I want to be like him. <laughs> um, so another question that I was given by people who admire you, um, they asked, do you care about the reviews that you get and how do you deal with the bad? I, so this, there was something I read and it was like a Tim Ferriss thing years ago, but it's like, there was a sign of success when you start getting detractors and negative comments. I very, I can't, I, I'm, I'm not just saying this boosts my ego, but I very rarely if ever get negative comments, which also makes me think, am I not expanding my footprint large enough to attract negative publicity? Um, am I not doing enough? Am I not getting my voice out there enough? Because it, it, it I wouldn't say I seek it, but I'm curious why I, I don't get it. And I, and I used to be, I would say, more nervous about it. And particularly when I was starting, like I was like, oh God, like somebody's just going to flame me as I start putting my, my chin out there. I'm going to take one. But it hasn't happened. And if anything, it's been more encouraging. I've definitely said and done stupid things. Um, I don't think really horribly wrong but you know when people are like i actually think you're you're kind of completely wrong about this you're looking at the wrong way i I actually encourage negative feedback i'm very much in that kind of uh lincoln-esque and building a a group of people around you that you know might look at things different than you and detract from you and i actually built a culture of that with a lot of a lot of the teams i built you know i'd have people come over from other offices when i was running uh the incident response team for kivu in the denver office and i'd have other managers come over and like what is going on here you guys are all like arguing with each other like you're a family fighting over dinner and i'm like yeah that's how we operate and we you know we are respectful we'll be forceful in our opinions and passionate you know we're never getting into name calling or tearing down but if somebody's wrong we're gonna we're going to pick at that and, and figure out a better way forward. And so that I kind of encourage that level of detraction because it helps me get out of my own biases and start thinking of things more clearly. But unfortunately like with some of the things I've done, I think publicly, I haven't really gotten anything, which is, which is weird. Like I, all, I, all my immediate reaction to that is I'm not getting a large enough audience for people to be detractors. <laughs> for them to dissent. I, yeah, I know what you mean when, uh, when I wrote my first book, I was so ner- It makes you vulnerable, you know, when you put yourself out there. And that was my biggest fear is that I would get something wrong. And um, that, that's always been that, oh, don't, don't call me on something that I'm wrong. If it's an opinion, yes, we can go back and forth. There's some gray matter there, but yeah. 
So as far as your goals, you know, you've reached a hundred. Do you have another goal um, in front of that? Yeah, you know, this is, you know, whether it's a superficial milestone or not, you know, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a number that'll at least get some type of recognition and you know, whether, you know, uh, subconsciously or not. But, you know, I think over the next, you know, whether it be another hundred, I always said, yeah, I'll do, do a hundred, see where it is. And, and then I'm still enjoying it. But there's also things I want to either socialize or bring up different topics as well. And, and I think the two that I'm going to really focus on over the next, at least in a, maybe a series of five, I'm still kind of working it out, but would be on mental health as one topic and diversity and inclusion. And, you know, when we speak about kind of nerves and detraction, you know, words, worries about being, having detractors when you put your chin out there, those are two topics I was really worried about. You know, I'm, a cis white middle-class male living in Boulder, Colorado. I mean, who am I to speak on, on sensitive topics? Um, and the more that I said, Hey, I think I'm really, you know, this is types of things that are bothering me. I've had my own mental health struggles and journey that when I talk to people like, so have I, I'm like, well, why are we not talking about it? And people are like, well, we feel scared. Why aren't you talking about it? I'm like, who wants to hear from me? And they're like, no, that's, you're like the epitome of what looks like people that don't have problems. So you need to be the one Doug talking about it because you look, normal ish, you know, whatever that corporate <laughs> kind of like blend of howdy doody white guy stuff is. And so I don't know, that purple mohawk that you had at the Wild West Hacking Fest was kind of cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to continue to rock that as, as I want to join Splunk. They call it very Splunkish. And it's, it, you know, and seriously, I'm going to keep because part of that is I'm a little bit tired of trying to continue to portray this mold of here's somebody successful in the industry. Here's what you have to look like. And I kind of want to start, I want to start attacking that a little bit. This bullshit. I, I don't think that people have to look or be a certain way. If you're bringing valuable thoughts and ideas and strategies to the table, who cares what you look like? Who cares about anything? Just get the job done. Work well with people. Don't be a jerk. Um, so I kind of want to <laughs> promote that. <laughs> and I think that that's been a problem within our industry is that a lot of people are, um, very hesitant to kind of come out of their shells to begin with. And then you put on a lot of superficial trappings around it. It only makes things worse. And, you know, when I talk to, you know, even, you know, really strong females, I know leaders in the industry, they're like, yeah, I have to be careful about what I say or do online because I've had issues with cyber stalking or harassment. I'm like, God, I don't even, I can't even imagine that. I would never do that. But they're like, but you also don't get it because of who you are. So you need to talk about these types of issues, shed some light into it. So th those are those things I just really decided I really want to f focus on and so far. Again, being nervous, we've been worried of being accused of virtue signaling because people just are like, ah, oh, whatever. You again, you should have no right talking about it. I've not. It's been very positive and very encouraging to kind of continue to talk about these these topics. Excellent. That's awesome. Um, all right. So another question that came in is, uh, what is the most important soft skill for cyber 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 infosec <laughs> professionals to sharpen? as they continue their careers, speaking clearly is one, uh, not just learning coding, uh, but when to be quiet, uh, audience analysis. You know, it, it really kind of comes down, I, I, I don't know it was, whether it was one or two glasses of wine inspired me to write this on the whiteboard the other day, but it's like, I was thinking, about, I was kind of deconstructing security underlying, underlying security is human behavior. Humans are psychological creatures and they're, they're cognitive creatures. So really cybersecurity is psychological, you know, and it's really a, a cognitive art and really understanding how humans behave. And I was talking to some folks about 
um, different threat actors the other day in the different TTPs and saying, well, look, you know, I'm not going to look at the way a state-sponsored, you know, potential Chinese APT group acts the way that an Eastern European gang is going to act, the same way that an Iranian gang is going to act, the same way that um, Ukrainian cyber criminal. Like, they all have different types of motivations behind their actions. They also have different cadences in the way that they operate, when they operate, the tools that they do and certain things that you start to see behavior patterns. And so I think that's a key thing is really to understand humans as much as possible. I know it's a broad-based statement, but really understand the psychology and motivations of people, why they do things. Um, one of the cliched things I say all the time to, to, to my staff and others is economics is not necessarily about money. Economics is about incentives and reward systems. And so when you understand what motivates people to do certain things and how you can either you know, take away the reward or encourage them and incentivize them to do other things, that's how you change behavior. And I think that's a key thing in cybersecurity is not to focus just on the technology, but understand really like human behavior, what's happening behind a keyboard, both as an analyst, as well as, um, you know, if you're doing offensive attacking or just understanding what other people are doing. It's the only way you're really going to kind of get down to that level of making meaningful change. Because, yeah, we can all set all firewall rules. Why the firewall rule get changed in, in the beginning with? Did somebody need an emergency and put in the proper change request and track it? Why did it get forgotten? You know, what, what do we have to do to change that behavior and incentivize people to do the right thing and just, just de-incentivize them to do the bad thing? Very cool, very cool. I like what you said about understanding what's behind the keyboard. As I've been looking at Intel, um, it's really interesting to me, and it was a light bulb moment when I started, like you mentioned, the cadence of the hacks and who's doing it, whether it be you know, Iran, NATO, Israel, whomever's doing it watching their religious holidays, how things can kind of sometimes go dormant, depending on who, that was a, oh my gosh, I never even thought about that. And um, so yeah, looking at the culture, we are, we everything in, in cyber is going to be based on that human element. That's why I love Chris Hadnagy's books so much. You know, the science of human hacking, the art of human hacking. I even have my 13 year old reading it because I think if I can give her that advantage in life, <laughs> understanding that it's all about the people that's that it's huge well it's going to help you professionally and personally too it's you know, it's funny um because my my <laughs> my wife my daughter and my mom will call me out friends like yeah this kind of intrinsic ability to understand how humans are going to behave and almost see all these moves yet at times you don't apply that to your interpersonal relationships so it's like it's it's which is good. It's like, it's that weird self-awareness to go, wow, how do I do this in one area and not another? And how do I, how do I do that? How do we more in the moment of that? But really understanding like how people behave and act. Um, and yeah, knowing when to, you know, when to be a bull in a China shop to when to be maybe less aggressive on, on trying to put through a point. You know, a lot of times there's, particularly as you get higher up in organizations and you get into security leadership, there is so much politics that goes around it. And, you know, people think like, oh, like, you know, these CISOs must be indebted with all this tech. I'm like, they probably spend 10, 15% of their day under, like just having a service level understanding the tech. The rest of the day is jockeying for money, dealing with personnel and HR issues. I mean, there's just so many things that go into dealing with organizational issues that are about humans when you're designing something at scale that have less and less to do with the technology. So I can't emphasize that enough is as you progress in your career is continue to kind of keep that knife sharp of, of understanding human behavior, because it's, it's something that just keeps coming up time and time and again in every career path. 
you know, that that's very interesting, but it is different for the people, the players that are in this industry. You know, my parents were older. Um, see, my dad was born in 30. My mom was born in 32. And so I was a very late child. And my mother's biggest, you know, what she would always tell me was, was to be nice. Nadine, be nice. Because that was her generation. She had to be nice. My father, on the other hand, was Nadine, be nice until you can't be nice. And so just having that as my foundation, I find it hard not to be nice, that it's hard to break out of that mold and, and ask for what I need with, without that coaching of nicety around it. So, so you know, I think we all have our own, you know, talents. And um, so that kind of leads me to the next question. What talent would you want if, you know, what talent would you want to possess if you could? Talent. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm very careful to delineate between talent and skill being something that's skill that you can kind of um, be trained on. And you might have some innate kind of skills with it, but, you know, or, or innate attributions with that. But same thing with, with talent is something that's just your your superpower, so to speak. It's something that's uniquely you, um, that you can train and make better, but it's, it's definitely something that gives you a leg up on, on others. And that's, that's a, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, man. That's, I would say it stumped me. I mean, there's a lot of things I think I'm, I, I, and I think very, very strongly on doubling down on your talents. When you find something that you're good at, um, you know, get, 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 get more good around it. And so it's like one of those things that's, it's hard to say, but there's definitely things, you know, I, I, gosh, I don't know. Like there's, there's things I love to do that I wish I did better. Let's put it that way. So it's things like snowboarding. It was always my dream to be, you know, to, to somehow be paid to professionally snowboard and travel the world and do that. I wish I had that level of just innate physical ability and, and had that, genetics that would allowed me to do that. I think that's the one thing that I was like, God, I wish I was born with that. While I can do it really well, and it's probably a better balance to have a good job that allows me to do it as much as I need to. <laughs> it's, it's probably a better, better, better balance because it's probably also one of those things too is that once you once you do something that is your passion, it, it might not be fun anymore. That hell, that's happened to me tons of times in cybersecurity. I think I'm, I'm, I have certain talents when it comes to technology and understanding it, but there's been times I'm like, gosh, I wish I didn't know any of this. I just, I want to put it away. I don't, I don't want somebody, you know, a family member texting me at 11 PM saying my computer doesn't start. I'm like, I, you know, I don't do help desk stuff anymore. Of course I'll help you though. But you know, it's just, I, there, there's times where I wish I didn't have talents in that arena. I know what you mean. There, there are several times I've been asked for, my printer's not printing. <sighs> really? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, with the homeschooling, I, I've been, I've been, I've had to learn. You know, I didn't know enough about Google Chromebooks, but all of a sudden, I'm doing help desk for my daughter and getting the printers working and online, and she has half of my podcast gear up there for now for for distance learning because it's like, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm plugging things in all day long and helping it. So. <laughs> Sweet. I know. I'm in the exact same boat. Um, this one's kind of fun. If you found $2,000 on the ground, what organization would you donate it to? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I spent a lot of time when I was in New York working with an organization that would probably be my first go-to. And the, the name of the organization was Her Justice. Great organization. 
And what I really liked about them was almost their type A tenacity on looking at things from, you know, kind of social programs as businesses. So this huge return on investment. So that is the type of organizations I look for, the ones that really have meaningful impact. And they would think it was something like for every dollar given to the organization, $7 of legal services were given to women and family in need in New York City um, and life-changing results. I mean, these were these were folks that, that usually came, um, you know, they were immigrants. They were here with a, a potentially financially, verbally and physically abusive partner that would threaten to take the kids away, send them back to their home country, take away their passport. I mean, just horrible, just totally messing with people's minds. And when these women would try to get out of these situations, it's, you know, you're in a foreign country, like, where do you go for legal help? And it was really tough. So they were able to go to this organization and get, you know, AM one law, AM law 100 representation. So these completely white shoe law firms. So imagine, you know, you're, you're going to family court with a partner from white and case. It's, that's huge. And it was just huge outcomes where these women then were able to get, uh, protective orders and get their, their lives together, get financial, um, not just financial help, but financial planning and stability. So that organization would probably be the first one, just with the amount of impact that they had with every dollar given to the organization. I truly believed in their cause of just being so cathartic and helpful. Um, it, it, it was just, was just amazing. And it's such a great experience. And I encourage everybody, you know, look for that within your, your professional life, look at ways to give back that are outside of the industry. You know, um, I was helping somebody else uh, yesterday locally that's that's volunteering with, um, you know, victims, uh, child child victims, and and how working with law enforcement, how to do forensics and things like that. I'm like, yep, yeah, not a problem. Like, here, here's some here's some other resources and and talk to these people to get some help because I think you just have to give back so much to uh, to your community outside of work. Yeah, I think that's why I'm so passionate about education. I love being able to pass on what I know. And uh, having that empower and make other people's lives easier. I love that. Um, so this one came to me over LinkedIn. And uh, so let's segue a little bit. Um, any comment on DevSecOps? Is it a good idea? How can leaders break down those barriers, those organizational barriers to get the perceived benefits of DevSecOps? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting topic, and it's one that I again feel a neophyte on, and had to really kind of embrace this um, completely just new and with open eyes. I did a number of projects, uh, some of them are public with, with Chinese based companies and, and their software development lifecycle, their security of their products, supply chain and everything about that. And so I really got to get firsthand knowledge. But at the same time, I was feeling uh, why me like I barely know the stuff I can't program really well. Like I, I understand all the key concepts. I understand like my mind's wired for process and workflow. So it's like, if you tell me here's a, here's a process flow chart, I'm like, okay, I understand every box and what needs to be done and the races that go along with it. Um, but didn't feel qualified to really kind of opine on it. But then my, the more I looked around, I would ask around, like, well, who, you know, who else can I bring in? So everybody was like, we really don't know this. This is brand new. And DevOps as a process, you know, of, of continuous improvement in that whole CDI, CDI pipeline, um, continuing to push products, has an ability, I think, at a business level to continue to do great things organizationally to get things to market faster. The challenges then become, okay, then where do you end, where's the intersection of security on that? Where does security become baked into this without it becoming an afterthought? My concern is we enter DevSecOps and all these different things around even the infrastructure when you come to containerization. Yes, things can become easier, but my fear is there's an abdication of saying, well, 
since we moved to this containerization platform and we've adopted this philosophy of DevOps and we're going to do some security gating into it, but what, what are you really doing? What's the process? Has it been documented? Um, are there workflows? Are they checked and audited internally on a regular basis to make sure things from the code base to how things are being pushed from different dev stages into production are being adhered to? Because the fear is that, and I've heard this um, from, from people that have been on product, that were in product security, and I would say before there really was a DevSecOps thing, that I would say, well, you know, how, how, is, how are you forcing the hand, so to speak, of the business to adopt security as part of this life cycle. And they'd be like, we can't. They're willing to take the risk. It's a business risk, Doug. They're thinking about what if we go to market on this and nobody discovers the vulnerability. Like how much time are we going to spend hunting out every bug and vulnerability? Because really there's no liability on it. If we get caught, yeah, maybe there's a public thing every 18 months, but who knows, might get patched in the next update cycle because we're pushing out updates every two weeks. So there's almost this desensitivity to it that concerns me a little bit that people kind of think it's either going to be taken care of on its own because of the innate nature of the lack of infrastructure around it or that it'll just be patched on the next release. So my hope is that, you know, we, I'm starting to work with some folks now and we're going to do, I'm hopefully going to, I got to reach out to folks like the CSA and ISSA and other groups uh, to work with a couple different people I've picked around the industry that have, um, that do dev security to say, okay, what are we going to call, like, what are the terms? Let's come to a common body of terms when it comes to DevOps, DevSecOps, containerization, how all these pieces fit together, define them, and figure out where's the good areas that need the most amount of security oil to kind of prevent failure. Um, so whether it's code base checks, or there's just so many different rabbit holes to go down to, but what are going to have the meaningful uh, process in order. So I want to start kind of formulating a a process around that over the next year. It's kind of my other project. That's my technical project besides the the cultural projects of uh, diversity, inclusion, and mental health. But that's 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 the thing I don't know enough about. So I'm I'm instantly attracted to getting outside my comfort zone. <laughs> if you haven't if you haven't picked up on that, um, and that since I don't know enough about DevSecOps, I want to I want to learn it and help define what that's going to mean for the future. Well, what's funny is that sometimes the people in DevSecOps don't realize that they're in DevSecOps. I have some names for you, so, so ping me after this. Um, I, I know a couple of people in a couple of different organizations that would be perfect for you to talk to. Um, I, I've been on the receiving end of a couple of uh, rants on DevSecOps. So uh, kudos for you for, for being willing to, to think outside the box and, and be adventuresome in, in what it is that you do. That's so cool. Um, let's see. So here's another one. When do you know it is time to leave a job that you have loved? That's yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Um, I, I would say, even if you love the job when there's, you know, for me personally, it's definitely a personalized kind of question. You know, for me, I need lots of challenges. Um, and often, you know, I need to kind of walk in, see how things are kind of working, but we can be working better. Do process improvement, clean up things, make things either more top line revenue, prof, uh, you know, more money coming in, but also a greater profit margin on that to improve operations. I love doing those kind of things. And when I run out of those types of problems, I tend to get bored. Um, and often I can even get into internal political battles because it's just like, you know, idle hands or the devil's play thing. So I'll start looking for other problems that might not be within my purview to solve. So it's, it's constantly, 
you know, me looking to stay in my lane and find new problems to solve. And when I run out of those, it's then saying, okay, well, what's the next thing that I, you know, what's the next hill to conquer? Um, and so that, that's always been a big driver for me for others. It might be different, you know, you know, even if you love the job, it could be a cultural thing. You know, I think it's really important to, and I've, I've seen this change within organizations I've built, but also for me personally, is it's not just about the money anymore. It's not about saying, Hey, you know, we're going to give you six figures and two weeks off. And we expect, you know, this crazy utilization if you're a consultant, um, but you got to put in all these crazy hours. When I tried to hire people that were millennials that were incredibly talented, they were like that. No, we're working 40, 50 hours a week. My, my nights, with my family means stuff to me. My weekends mean something to me. I want more travel time. And if it means less money, that's fine. But our uh, vacation time to travel, but you know, that became a different kind of lens to look at the work-life balance. I hadn't thought of when I started hiring people that brought me to that perspective and definitely changed the way I look at it. And it's like, when, when you feel that it's encroaching, even if it's a job you love, but if it's in that, I think those are the hardest ones. It's when you really love what you're doing, but it's, it's bleeding into your personal life or other areas where you're just not getting that work-life balance. It's, it's it might be time to move on. Yeah. And it might be like that frog in the pot where you can slowly turn it up and they don't recognize that it's happening. Um, I've been in situations where I started off in one role and then they saw that I was better in another role and then I had to play both roles. And um, yeah, yeah, it, it's not until you you take a couple of steps back and realize maybe this isn't as good of a fit as it was in the very beginning. And and I think that's funny I, I, that, that, you know, you say that, you know, when it's when you're bored, when you're not being challenged, that's what my mom used to tell my teachers. Don't let her get Same bored. Same thing. <laughs> He's going to get in trouble. And I would have to write, I will not talk in class. I will not talk in class. And now I get paid to talk in class. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah, exactly. Right. I don't think like, yeah. And the whole point now is they, they, again, whether it's the podcast or at work, it's like, go do the Doug show, go talk. And the same thing in school, it was like, <laughs> we, we couldn't get you to shut up. And I'm like, well, okay, well now at least I channeled it to a more positive way. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, so what is the smartest thing you've ever done? Smartest thing I ever have done. Wow. Oh, a broad question. That's a good one though. Um, yeah, you, you didn't get all of them. I got some. <laughs> <laughs> you know that, but that's a good one. Um, asking for help. And that's not just been a singular moment. I would say there's times when I've needed help from people. And I think that's a smart Let's say more of a smarter habit that was hard for me to do once, but once I realized um, it didn't make me weaker and actually empowered me, then became a habit, and it was really hard for me to do. And whether that was asking for help about you know physical or mental health, you know if, you know, if there's something that pains me, I'll tough through it. Just I'm a, I'm a guy, I gotta gotta tough through it, um, which only delayed you know, recovery on whatever it was like, you know, stupid things. Like I even find like my elbows, like both my elbows have been killing me. And I finally was like, okay, they're not getting better on their own. Let me, let me go to PT again. And she's like, yeah, here, do these couple extra. And they're already starting to get better, but I delayed it for months thinking, no, 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 I don't. And it just, you know, I will fall back into the habit again, but I always have to remind myself, like just when I feel overwhelmed or when I'm, I'm feeling like I have to take on the world, maybe that's not the right time to take on the world. <laughs> you know, it, it starts saying no and asking for help. And that's, given me more uh growth and expansion of what I want to do because I don't get so bogged down and in, into whatever that minutiae detail is and when you share some of that workload um 
it, it you just get so much more done and it becomes so much so much more successful in other areas of your life. I think you've answered the next question. What would you tell a 16 year old Doug? Oof. You're Is that <laughs> well, no, I would say it is that. <laughs> And I probably got to tell myself this now. You're not always right. You know, I've, I've been able to get a lot of confirmation bias by being very emphatic, passionate, well-spoken about things I believe in. And, and that comes from, you know, good parenting and good, good uh, adult role models growing up. I was kind of the youngest, but I had, you know, my, my parents were writers. They presented, they were early consultants. They were very driven. I had a you know, my, my oldest half sister was the youngest New York times bestseller, um, in, in humor writing in the eighties at the time. Um, and so I just had, you know, very strong people and older people that, you know, really made me feel like I had to kind of step up my game and be more, you know, kind of put my foot down and I'm, I'm right. And so maybe there's another part of that of not, you know, your time will come, Doug, <laughs> you don't have to like be this perfect thing and right out of the gate all the time. But I really definitely felt that pressure when I was in my teens of like, you know, what's, what's going to be my big thing. And like, what do I have to do that's, that's meaningful or impactful. And, you know, I think I, I kind of built myself a little bit of an ego putting these folks around me on a pedestal thinking that, you know, I have to, I have to fight to be at their level and be so passionate about everything I say. And, and, and then almost start believing my, believing my own BS after a while. Um, <laughs> instead of it's just self-checking just saying, you know, just slow down, and enjoy the ride, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it is a journey. Most definitely a journey. All right. So I have one last question for you, and it is an odd one. Um, what is the strangest thing in your refrigerator? Right now, let's see. So, you know, when we, we speak about folks that are in our industry. In our, well, here's another thing. It's, our industry is also, I look at it as family. So tomorrow I have at least two different groups of people from two different or three different IR teams that I've, I've either coached or mentored over the years coming over and I was going to call it a blue team barbecue at my house. So right now there's three racks of ribs, a brisket and all these things that I'm thinking I'm going to have to show up Dave Kennedy on some photos on social media about this stuff. This stuff's <laughs> like I, after we do this, I'm going to start cooking and getting stuff ready. And this, these are going to be some, some Instagram worthy uh, uh, pieces of meat that are going to come out of the smoker. Yeah. He, he and Paul Asadorian too. Both, I know. Both of them are starting to smoke a lot. Yeah. <sighs> I feel like I stepped my game, but outside of that, there's probably, I'm trying to think if there's any weird vegetables right now. We also did, and, and I encourage people to do this too. And particularly we're lucky here in Colorado, but I've done um, a number of, or we did the summer of uh, farm share. So we had a CS, so our community supported garden and I have we get just odd vegetables I didn't I was like I've never seen this before and they were like yeah it's uh I forgot what some of these were and so I think there's probably a couple of those in there that I have to kind of figure out how to cook um and there's probably some <laughs> jars of things there's definitely jars of things I'll go down to H Mart I love to do lots of different ethnic cooking um I grew up with a lot of Indian extended family and Southeast Asian so I love to cook a lot of that but I probably have jars and I always look for these if I can't read anything on them I know there's got to be something good in there and I'll buy those at H Mart and I have no idea what they are well well when I when I got that question I thought oh my gosh good thing they're not, they're not asking that of me what's in my freezer I actually have a hard drive in my freezer <laughs> that makes sense I'm like yeah and <laughs> don't we all <laughs> I know I know and, and yeah you're you're a member of my tribe if you know why <laughs> <laughs> Well, Doug, I have to say that the years that I've known you and, you know, thank you for letting me quote you in my book. Um, it has been a joy. 
and and you bring so much knowledge to the table. You ask the right questions of the right people at the right time. Um, is there any parting thought for you? You know, what do you have in store for us for the next 100 uh, cybersecurity podcasts? Yeah, and thank you for for all the encouragement. It uh, again, the the as you know, the imposter syndrome kind of comes and goes. It's something you you live with, and every now and then that little voice will start taking away in the back of the head. So I, I, I appreciate hearing the nice things every now and then to, to drive it back. But I you know I think for the next hundred episodes, and you know I might take little breaks in between, like I have coming up to this one. But I, I think I'm really going to continue to try to again be the mission of removing some of these stigmas. I, I'm I'm at a point in my career. Uh, in life where I want to see some fundamental changes. I want to do some moonshots and I really want to break down the barriers when we talk about, um, staffing uh, that there's not enough qualified people. I think there's plenty of qualified people. I think we, we scare a lot of people away in our industry and that's got to change. I think we can solve that problem. And that's something I want to, you know, you know, pick at, <laughs> let's say in the next hundred episodes is to, to make this more of an inclusive in, aware industry about how we act and behave towards each other and encourage more people to come in or we're just never going to fix the, the the talent gap and there is one but also fix a lot of operational things i want to figure out better ways to run security operations at the enterprise and get more stories out there to say here's your recipe for success it's an 80 20 rule i i want to stop seeing the same problems i've been seeing for the last 10 years <laughs> in the next year <laughs> yep yep i know exactly what you mean well, I appreciate you letting us reverse roles and I got to interview you. That's going on my resume. That's awesome. So. Well, thank you. <laughs> Doug, thank you for everything that you've done for our community and um, we appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.